Welcome to Elevated Voices Podcast, where we value using our voice collectively to explore life challenges, including mental health, addiction, trauma, and ways to heal. With our voice, we empower, encourage, and transform lives. I'm your host, Daishika Bibbs, a certified trauma-focused therapist, licensed clinical social worker, and licensed certified addiction specialist. As you listen, ask questions, and enjoy the show, remember, this podcast is not a substitute for a therapeutic relationship with a licensed mental health professional. As we embark on this journey together, let's elevate our voice to echo the sound for the voiceless. Welcome, 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 welcome. Today's guest is a jovial, outgoing woman who is a fighter and no stranger to putting on boxing gloves, going toe-to-toe as she battled with anorexia on and off since 2002. 13 years later, in 2015, she received news of having a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but that didn't stop her from being a mental health blogger and champion. She hails from across the deep blue sea where London is her home. Elevated Voices Podcast would like to give a hearty welcome to Kara Lissette for joining the show. Thank you so much, Kara, for being here with me. I am honored to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So I am so curious to know you have so many positive things going on. And I'm really curious to know what is Carol's Corner all about and why you created it? So Carol's Corner is my blog. Um, I created it because I kind of wanted to share my experiences of living with mental illness and particularly around eating disorders because I think they're really misunderstood So I sort of started it a few years ago with the aim of just starting to raise awareness. And then when I had quite a significant relapse a couple of years ago, it became sort of like a journal for me to document my recovery. And then I kind of just picked up quite a lot of followers along the way who were following me in that journey. And it's now kind of turned into like an active recovery blog that people were sort of able to kind of see my progress and also for me to kind of share some of the the ups and downs of recovery and what what it's like to live with eating disorder. That's amazing that you took that initial step and put yourself out there for helping with your recovery for the world to see. A lot of people are afraid to do that. Well, when I started blogging, it was actually anonymous and I did it for like charities and for other people's blogs. And I was really worried that anyone would ever find out that it was me that was writing it. I was just very, very private about my mental health. And then I don't know, I just kind of got a bit braver about it. I started talking to people in real life about it talking about it more on social media and then I ended up just getting a really nice response from that and then that kind of just gave me a bit more confidence to to be able to use my voice to try and make a difference really and I think that that's very important being able to to use your voice and share your story because there are so many other people out there who who are afraid and they don't want other people to criticize them or look down on them or judge them. I mean, that that's really, really hard. One of the things that I would like for you to share is what led up to your eating disorder? 
Good question. I think I, I grew up in a household that was quite diet centric and there was always a lot of talk about food and diets and weight and things like that. So I think from being quite little, that was just on my radar. And then I guess when I was maybe about seven or eight, I just started to become really aware of my body and how much space I took up and kind of what I looked like compared to other children. And then it just kind of lay dormant, I guess, for a while until I was about 12 or 13, like in my early teens. And then it just gradually progressed into a diagnosable eating disorder from there. But it's really hard to pinpoint any real specific trigger. I think it was just kind of like a a snowball effect, really. When I started secondary school, that was, I guess, I was around a lot more children that I could compare myself to. Parents split up, I went to a new school, and I think there was just a lot of changes all at once. And that was just the outlet that my, my brain thought was the best place to go. Right. I want to take a step back and point out two of the things that you stated. And I feel that those two things are very important, which was your age and the different situations and events that were going on in your life at that time. You were only around about eight or nine when you started thinking about food in the space that you took up. Just imagine how other kids at that age, eight or nine, or even younger, how they feel about food and what they may think about food, especially when they're learning it from home. And then on top of that, being able to go to school and hear and see your peers talking about, you know, food or what they're eating or what they're not eating, all of which plays a part in how you then in return process that. It's a lot better now than it was when I was young, but I think there's just still such a lack of body diversity and things just in the media. Um, And I grew up in not a very diverse area at all. Um, So I had quite a narrow perception, I guess, of what I was supposed to look like. And that was something I was aware of from being really young. What was that typical ideal of what your body should look like? I guess I just thought that I needed to take up kind of as little space as possible. And that's something that I've, I've kind of held on to all the way through my teens and my 20s and what I did a lot of work in therapy on this time around is about trying to find some sort of value in myself outside of my weight and what I look like and kind of seek that in the relationships I have with other people and my achievements that exist outside of my eating disorder um, my career my hobbies things like that just trying to trying to put more value on those things and less value on what I look like and how much I weigh. Definitely and I think that value is such a important word that you shared because a lot of us sometimes struggle with that and we do pivot and we do soak in a lot of what society is telling us a lot of what we see on social media a lot of what we see on tv or in the magazines and for some of us we want to look that way for some of us we need to look that way For some of us, we are taught to look that way. And the smaller you are, the more beautiful you are. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just kind of what what has always been fed to me since I was little is that, you know, it's just really, really important to be thin. And that's the most important thing in the world. And I think being in a, a household where 
there was a lot of dieting and things like that I was very aware from being quite little of what was a, a good food and a bad food and what was good about being thin and what was bad about not being thin and I think I just carried those ideals through the rest of my life right have you ever heard the concept of associating being thin with being healthy Yes, so many times. And that's what's really ironic about eating disorders is that I was, you know, going back, well, many times in my life, but this most recent time, going back a couple of years, I was incredibly unhealthy just because of how low my weight was and the sort of all the the side effects that came from having such a restricted diet. But that's the perception the world has, isn't it? Is that then you're healthier and that's not always the case at all. True. And I think that social media in society has so much power and so much influence it's almost like the message that we receive about what we eat and how we eat things it is literally being enforced every single day in our lives so it's not hard for us to learn that behavior yeah and there's so much moral value placed on food as well just in terms of the language we use like food is bad and, and things like guilt-free and stuff like that. And I just think like you shouldn't feel guilty to eating anything, but that's just the language we use in, in sort of diet culture is sort of all this, this language that's so heavily weighted with morality about what's good and bad to eat. And the things that are bad are the things that are, you know, higher calorie and that cause weight gain is well, in theory cause weight gain. Um, and you're, we're sort of taught from so little that those things are, are bad for us to eat. And that's just not the case at all. And it's so funny that you mentioned that because anything can be bad for you. For example, my doctor, she was talking to me and I switched my diet and I stopped eating meat. And so I was eating a lot of green leafies. And she said, you have to be careful and you have to be able to balance your green leafies because too much vitamin K is bad for you, right? And I was like, but but I'm eating healthy. You know, I'm not eating meat. I'm not eating fried food. And now my my doctor is saying I need to be careful with the quote unquote healthier foods. Yeah, it's just such a, a bizarre perception, isn't there, of just, you know, the more vegetables you eat, the better. And that's just, you know, for me, Like there's nothing healthier I could do than eat a chocolate bar for a snack or something because it's just taking me further and further away from my eating disorder, being able to do things like that. So for for me, those things that are considered traditionally unhealthy foods are probably the healthiest things that I can eat a lot of the time. Right. And I think the positive thing we can take from this is balance. No matter what you eat, how you eat it, you have to be able to maintain balance. And even the nutrition world where at one point we had those meal charts where they showed you the different portions of food that you should eat. And they had different components on that plate. But now that plate has actually changed. Yeah, I think we're just learning more and more all the time, aren't we, about kind of what is and isn't healthy. And I do feel I do feel there's been quite a bit of a shift since I started treatment, depending on dietitians and what service you're in and your age and things like that, I guess. But in my most recent round of treatment, when I was in day patient, a lot of our snacks were things like chocolate and ice cream. And we were having things like pizza and bread and things like that, because I think the idea was just to kind of teach us that actually these traditionally quote unquote bad foods are really important 
you know, it's important that we don't have any of these things off limits. And it's important that your recovery isn't just centered around trying to eat as healthily as possible because, you know, that food's there to, to be enjoyed, not just to kind of keep you alive. Um, and that was something really important that, that I learned in treatment this time around is that, you know, it's not, it's not just there as a, as a tick box exercise to kind of sustain you through the day. It's got many other functions than just that. Definitely. And speaking of treatment, when did you decide to seek help for your eating disorder? Um, the first time, I'm not sure. It was so long ago now and I was so young. I'm not sure how much agency I really had over that decision. But as an adult, I think I've been there uh, three times now under the adult service. And I think every time I've just got to the point where I just think I just don't want my life to, to kind of be like this anymore. Um, and each time I've kind of sought help at an earlier point, I think. So this time around, I went pretty early on when I was just like things are not going very well it did take a while to be seen after that but I think I'm much better at sort of noticing those early warning signs now and I kind of I knew it was going to be a while before I was seen and I knew that if I waited any longer by the time I got seen things would be a lot worse um so I kind of went as soon as I identified that actually I'm not sure that I've really got control over this situation anymore. Knowing your triggers is what you're saying being aware of what your body is saying to you and how your thoughts and your behaviors are being displayed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really difficult to sometimes know those things if you've not been in treatment already, because that's part of what you learn. But I think because I've been in and out of services for such a long time now, each time I kind of feel like I learn new things about myself and about my eating disorder and what, what the kind of function it serves for me is. And that's kind of meant that I'm able to catch it earlier and earlier um, each time it happens because I'm quite attuned now to what that what a relapse looks like, really. Got it. And I think that what you said is important because most people won't know. And if you don't know, then how can you ask for help? How can you work hard to heal or recover or seek help if you don't understand or if you're not aware with you being in recovery and receiving the treatment that you did, what are some positive strategies that you have learned? I did a lot around early warning signs and relapse prevention in terms of what kind of to keep an eye out on. We did like a traffic light system. Red was, I need professional support. Green was, I'm fine. And then orange was, you know, things aren't going great, but I've got the ability to turn this around myself without necessarily needing to have input from services again. Um, and then just thinking about sort of what all those symptoms would be in those categories. I did a lot about signs that other people could look out for, because normally early in relapse, I'm very secretive about it. Um, and people often don't realise until it's too late for them to really do anything about it. So I did quite a lot about how to involve other people, what they can do that isn't, isn't helpful, and just a lot about how to kind of take forward a lot of the things I'd learned in therapy to be able to, to still kind of use those skills outside of that environment um, since I've been discharged. And I've been able to do that pretty well, actually. So I had CBT this time around, um, specifically for, for eating disorders. And a lot of it is just been around like thought challenging and things like that. And I can definitely do those things a lot more automatically than I could when I first started therapy, where it felt like a real effort to think of an alternative thought to the that anorexia thought that had come into my head and I find now when I have those thoughts I'm much more able to to have sort of an automatic 
alternative thought to it, which has taken a lot of practice, but is is a really helpful skill that I've learned. Definitely. I will have to agree. Cognitive behavioral therapy, again, what you described as um, CBT is a wonderful tool that we as clinicians use to help individuals who are struggling with any form of a mental health illness and or mental health period. So being able to understand how your emotions, your thoughts and your behaviors are connected. Like you said, once you realize what your triggers are and you can relate those triggers to an emotion or a thought, then in return, when you hit that orange part of that traffic light, you then have the power to weigh out your options to see how can I respond? Do I need additional help? Is this something that I can work through and process on my own? And that is very, very critical is being able to take that ownership and say, yes, I can. And not being afraid to say, you know what? No, I do not. And then in return, let me reach out to my support system, whether it's my therapist, counselor, mentor, sister, brother, aunt, or close friend. Yeah, and a lot of what we did as well is about me trying to figure out sort of what function my eating disorder served and what I gained from it, and then thinking about how I could replicate that in other areas of my life. And I think people really struggle with the idea that you kind of gain anything from an eating disorder because it takes so much away from from your life but obviously everybody you know it's there for a reason isn't it and then there must be some sort of function to it and for me it's been a lot about feeling like I I want to have some sort of sense of achievement and a sense of control so we've done a lot of work around how can I get that sort of sense of achievement outside of having an eating disorder just in other areas of my life Um, and how can I feel like I've kind of got control over my life without having an eating disorder but also being comfortable with the fact that I might not have control over some parts of my life and that's just part of life is not always being in control of everything and sort of trying to learn to tolerate that feeling. That is a very valid point and you hit the nail on the head. I couldn't have said it better myself. You're absolutely right and sometimes it's not even about the disorder. It's about everything else that is outside of our control And sometimes we may use our eating disorder or sometimes we may use our addiction, whether it's gambling or sex or substances to feel like we are in control of something. And ironically, that often just leads to a sense of not having very much control. That's what happens with my eating disorder is I feel like I'm in control for a short period of time. And then after that, I've got none at all, you know. It's completely got control of me by the time that I've sort of realised that I can do anything about it historically. I'm, I'm hoping now if it did kind of present itself again, that I'd be able to catch it in time um, for that not to happen. But certainly historically, it doesn't take very long for me to lose the control over it entirely. Right. One of the positive things that you have going is you're aware and you're willing And it's not a secret anymore. So being able to have those three things, it makes a world of difference. 
Yeah, and I think that's some something that's been a really useful function of my blog and having like a sort of bigger social media presence is that it gives me a kind of bigger sense of accountability because so many people are aware of it now. And I think it would be very difficult for me to relapse now because people are very aware and have kind of got their eye on my progress and sort of what's going on. And I think actually, because I'd been relatively stable for quite a while before I relapsed last time, I think people had kind of taken their eye off the ball, which is completely understandable. I don't expect people to, you know, watch over me forever, but that made it very easy for me to to relapse uh, and kind of go under the radar a little bit before people notice. So I do think there is like a, I've got a bigger sense of accountability now that so many people are aware of it. Support, no matter where you're getting that support from, as long as it's positive, that's another key factor and component into healing and, and recovery and growing and developing into your new self. And speaking of new self, how are you now defining who you are? That's a really good question. I think it's kind of true for all mental health women, but especially eating disorders, they just become like your entire identity. And I think it's because they take up such an overwhelming part of your life that it also becomes kind of what other people associate with you as well. So for me, it wasn't just that I considered myself as somebody with an eating disorder. It was that everybody around me, because it was so sort of all-consuming and encompassed so much of my life to everyone else I just became this anorexic person again and it's really easy to sort of lose sight of yourself very very quickly as well I think because I've been unwell for such a long period of my life there are sometimes times where I think I don't really know who I am as somebody without an eating disorder but I have been well at other times so it's about trying to remember who was I in those times and who am I now and I think I'm somebody that cares a lot about other people and wants to help other people. I, I love traveling, I'm creative. There are definitely like quite a good social life, I like horse riding, and it's just trying to build up like other parts of my life that exist outside of having an eating disorder that are all things that also you lose quite quickly. Like I, you know, I couldn't really see friends. I had no creativity whatsoever because my brain was so, you know, I just had no concentration or anything because I just had no nutrition and my whole, all I thought about was food. And you just, it's just so easy to lose any sort of semblance of your personality. And it's, I think it's really nice kind of starting to get that back again. And I think that's something other people say to me a lot as well. It's, it's really nice kind of starting to see me kind of become myself again when I'm not for those periods of time when I'm unwell. Right. In essence, seeing you blossom, seeing you grow, seeing your smile. And that is important. Seeing you be you. And you're absolutely right when you don't have food or if you don't have the proper amount of food, your brain do not function very well. And so speaking to what you said is, you know, on top of not being able to be creative, I can't even function. My mind is so foggy and I can't even think straight let alone how am I supposed to carry out my day, right? How am I supposed to go horseback riding? How am I supposed to engage in a conversation with my friends and laugh and just really enjoy life? Mm, yeah, you just can't because they just suck the joy out of everything. Um, it's, such a, it's such a miserable place to be, which is, you know, it's really hard. Sometimes I'm still a bit ambivalent about recovery. And then I think, why? Like you were so unhappy during that time but that's the pull of it that's why people go back to it so much because there is there is a function to it even though 
99% of terrible, you know, that is absolutely terrible. There is that 1% of it that calls you back and you think, oh, well, maybe it wasn't that bad, actually. Um, and I've made a real point, actually, this time around. Of I've just I've just recorded everything, like, through my blog and I've got loads of journals that I've written and I've just made a real point of recording every terrible thing about it so that I can look back on it when it's trying to go, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad. Um, I can look back and be like, no, it was because you wrote that and you were miserable. And that's been a really useful reminder for me through recovery of, like, I just flip back a couple of pages in my journal and I'm like, wait, you, you know, you were really unhappy then and that's really helped. And I think that 1% that you spoke to, is being comfortable Mm. because when you spend so much time and you are so consumed with your disorder or when your disorder consumes you, that's all it is. And you become very comfortable in your disorder, even though it's unhealthy. And once you're comfortable with something, you stick with it, right? Because you know it so well. Mm -hmm. And going back to being able to step outside of that comfort zone and try something new, but also being consistent at trying this new healthy thing, it is a challenge. Yeah, it does just take your whole life over. It's like Groundhog Day living with an eating disorder. Like every day is exactly the same. You just wake up and you just like, how am I going to get through the next 16 hours or however long? And then you do your same rituals and your same routines and you do exactly the same thing as you did the day before just to kind of tolerate getting through the day. And then the whole thing starts again. And it's just, yeah, it just feels like there's no end in sight. Um, so it is, yeah, recovery is is very, very different to living with an eating disorder in that this is one of the things that's really hard about it is not having that control because you're right, it's comfortable. At least I knew what I was doing every day. I knew what I was going to feel every day. Um, and you, you know, what my routine is going to be. And actually life doesn't work like that, does it? And sometimes things come up, you know, since I've been in recovery, there are things that I didn't expect. And I'm so much better equipped to be able to cope with them now that even just now that my brain works, you know, better than it did, just gives me that flexibility of being able to cope with more spontaneity than I ever could before. Right, definitely. And I'm happy that you brought that up, being able to cope better flexibility in essence having a choice having a choice and a lot of people out there they feel like they don't have a choice so I want to ask you what is some positive advice that you can give to a listener who may be struggling with an eating disorder I think something that was really important for me to learn is that my behavior is always a choice and it doesn't feel like it. And this is something that I did a lot with my therapist. And he always just said, like, there's nobody holding a gun to your head. Like, you are the person that is doing that. You're the person who chooses whether to put that spoon to your mouth or not. Um, yes, the thoughts maybe are not under your control at the moment. And that your emotions aren't necessarily under your control at the moment, but your behavior is. Um, and that was really important for me because I think... Maybe for some people that wouldn't be received very well. And I think it can feel quite harsh, but also it made me feel like I had, I guess it was quite empowering and it made me feel like I had some agency over my recovery and over what I was doing. Um, And I think maybe I might not have responded to that so well had it been a few years previous and I was a bit uh, less experienced in the system, I suppose, and had had less therapy. But I think I really needed someone to be firm with me and say, look, you're the only person that can change this. 
And the only way you can change it is by changing what your behavior is. And you're the only person that can do that. And for me, that was really valuable to hear. Definitely. And Kara, your story is so amazing and powerful. And it speaks volume to the struggles that an individual may face. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be an eating disorder. Anything that you're facing that is causing a disruption in your life. So if someone wants to reach out to you, if someone wants to learn a little bit more about you, how can they reach you? Um, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at Cara Lizette, which is just my name. Um, and my blog is Cara's Corner. And if you just Google it, I think I'm the first page that comes up. Um, so you can find me that way. Listeners, you have heard it directly from Cara. She has shared her amazing story. She has a heart of fire and passion when it comes to mental health and blogging and being a champion. So don't hesitate to reach out to her, guys. Ask her questions. She's here. And I want to thank you for being a part of Elevated Voices podcast and lifting your voice and sharing your story and letting other people know that they are not alone. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to Elevated Voices podcast where we enjoy using our voice to share information which promotes growth and change. Never feel like you are alone. Join our Elevated Voices podcast community at Elevated Voices underscore on both Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned to bi-weekly episodes wherever you get your podcast. If there is a topic that you would like me to cover, or if you have questions, you can send me an email via my Elevated Voices podcast Facebook page. And remember, don't forget to let your voice be heard.